right, well, today we are continuing, of course, our look at the historic Christian faith. We're going through the Apostles' Creed as our guide. While we're not necessarily studying the creed itself, we are using it as an indi indication or a map to talk about what the early church, what those first Christians were saying about Jesus, about God, about the world, and how it all works together. Um, we read in the pastoral epistles, Paul write to Timothy and Titus and encourage them to keep the faith pure. We talked last week about what the faith is um, in terms of these sort of founding principles or founding beliefs. Uh, and so it's important that we ensure that whatever that was gets passed on. And so this is a look at what was being said, written, taught in that church in those first few hundred years. Uh, not, we're not necessarily dealing with modern theological reflection. Uh, we are dealing with what was said right out of the gate. What were those Christians? What was their profession? What was their gospel? What was their message to the world about Jesus, about God, about spirit, and what was going on and what had transpired in the life and work of Jesus? And I did not plan it this way. It just, just it happens to fall that today we will be looking at the second part of that first phrase, which is we believe in God the Father Almighty. So we're talking today about God the Father Almighty, how apropos and right that it is Father's Day. Uh, I will tell you, this is not necessarily a Father's Day message. Uh, we are talking about what this creedal statement says, what the early church was saying about God and the way that he is Father, um, in the way he is perhaps like what we talk about Father, and in some ways, the many ways in which he is not like what we would think of as Father. Uh, and those distinctions are important, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Right out of the gate, let's talk about... Uh, where this idea even comes from. We have a number of things in our faith and some doctrinal statements and doctrinal beliefs that, that do stem from that early church that we're talking about this period, which are a result of theological reflection. And we will get into this more deeply when we talk about the Trinity, but the Trinity is one of those things. You go to the Bible and you don't find the word Trinity. You don't find this doctrine present. It's not a teaching of Jesus, but in thinking about what the Bible says, what Jesus did teach, what the scriptures say about God, about Jesus, and about the Holy Spirit. There are claims that all three are divine. There are claims that they are all God. There are claims that they are all distinct. And so the Trinity is a necessary conclusion given what the scriptures say. But the concept of the Trinity and the theology and doctrine that we have developed, that was developed early on and has persisted throughout the church, is a theological reflection. It is, it is us looking at the scripture, looking at teachings, and drawing conclusions Rightly so. And it's, that's an important one. And we'll, we'll talk, we will talk about that in a coming week. God as father, however, is not that. Okay, It is important to know that in the Old Testament, God is not referred to as father, at least in the, in the way Jesus relates God as father to himself and invites us to be part of. There are statements in which God is referred to as the father of Israel, as the one who created it. And so in that sense, God is father in the Old Testament. But in terms of the revelation that God is Father, that there is this intimate relationship, that we ought to approach God and call him Father, that we should relate to him as someone who knows us and loves us intimately, is not theological reflection, but rather revelation. So this is the, this is the claim or the statement that God makes about himself through the person of Jesus Christ, right? So in the history of Israel, history of Judaism, they do not refer, as I said, to God as, as Father, as someone that they can approach closely, that they can have an intimate relationship. If you remember, we talked one week about 
uh, when God descends upon the temple and uh, before that in the tabernacle, there's this space called the Holy of Holies. That's where God comes. And no man is to go in that room, right? That is sort of off limits. It is sacred space. And it is taught and believed that if you were in the, to stand in the presence of God, you would surely die because of his glory. And so once a year, the high priest would enter that room to offer sacrifice on the day of atonement. And if you recall, I told you that often, or not often, but when, when that happened, they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle because there was always the expectation or the possibility that in coming, encountering the divine presence, they would die. And so the remainder of the priest didn't want to have to rush in and get the body. They would literally be able to just pull the rope and pull the body out should they die. But this was the, the relationship that they had with God. God was their protector. God was certainly their God. God was transcendent. He was the father of the nation, but he was not intimate. He was not close. He was not someone that you could address in the way that Jesus addresses and invites us to do. And so when we talk about God being our father in the way that Jesus did, we do so Again, not because we sat around and thought about scripture and think, oh, well, maybe God is like a dad or a father. It is because Jesus tells us he is, okay? So it's, it's that simple. Jesus tells us that God is father, right? And this morning, we're gonna look at a number of passages of scripture in which this happens. Uh, the first one's gonna come from John. It's 2017. It says, Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so here's a statement in which Jesus clearly calls God his father, but also acknowledges and instructs and tells us that he is our father. He's my father, he says, he's your father, right? And so it's an invitation to come into that relationship with God and relate to him as father. In Matthew, we read, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so this is the larger teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and that long discourse in Matthew. Um, but within that teaching, again, he relates God to us as father, right? This is Jesus telling us how God chooses to approach us, to relate to us, to draw near to us, and does so in a way that he calls father. Then as we all probably know by heart in the, uh, the prayer, the Lord's prayer, he instructs us, our father, to pray this way, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So this is actually really interesting because this is the moment when the disciples, not knowing exactly how to pray, how to speak to God in this way, because this is new, right? This is not something that um, they had been invited, or again, it's not within the long history of Israel to approach God in this way necessarily. And so they're seeking instruction from Jesus on how to talk to God in prayer. And the first thing Jesus says to do is to approach him like father, say our father, right? Recognize that this is the relationship that you have with God. Then in Mark, a description about about Jesus speaking, he says, he said, Abba, Father, for all things are possible. And it's interesting, this, this beginning in, in this language, you often read uh, Jesus or someone talking and they say, uh, it happens a lot when the disciples approach, talk to Jesus and they say, like, Lord, Lord, it gets re repeated. So it's called a double vocative. And in that language, it is emphatic. And so if you remember or recall the story when they're on the, on the boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up and they they scream at Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord, help us, right? 
uh, there's, there's much emotion behind statements when there's double vocatives. And this one here uh, gets rendered as Abba, Father. And it's a little different in that it's not necessarily the same word, but Abba is, anyone know how to translate Abba? Daddy, right? That was, that was emphatic. <laughs> Mike knew that one. Uh, it, it's daddy, right? And so this one, father can be sometimes a little dry and sterile. It's definitely a, a close, presumably and hopefully a close uh, uh, relationship, intimate relationship, but Abba certainly is. There's no question over there. And so here we see Jesus relating to God as daddy, okay? So th- which tells us that that relationship is a tight, mutually um, beneficial, loving relationship. And then in Romans, Paul says this, he says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father. So here is the uh, repetition of the way Jesus prayed. Paul is instructing us to pray in that same way, to approach God as Abba, as Daddy, as Father. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So here is Paul teasing that idea out, telling us we too ought to approach God as daddy, as father, that we are his children, that we are co-heirs along Jesus, alongside of Jesus in the kingdom. All right. So here is a number, obviously, of five or six examples of the way in which God is revealed to us as Father, all right? Again, it's not that we sit around and we have these ideas about God and think, oh, he might be Father-like. It is that Jesus comes and tells us God is your Father, okay? It is interesting, and we've got to put out one caveat about our relationship with God in light of Jesus, and that is to remember that Jesus is the natural Son, right? So Jesus and God, co-eternal, uh, we're going to tease out as much as we can that sort of relationship, again, when we get to the, our, our week on the Trinity. Um, but we, we use the term begotten. So he comes from, not created, but he emanates. He comes forth from the Father. So they have this natural link. We, however, are sons and daughters, co-heirs by adoption. And so there's a unique relationship between Jesus as son, God as father, and us as children and calling him father. But we are grafted in nonetheless. Um, but just an interesting di- distinction and something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, this whole idea is particularly in- interesting, of course, but unique to the Christian faith. If we think about the other world's religions, for example, we've talked a little bit about Judaism. Um, the idea that you would call God father or claim to be son of God is irreverent at best and heretical most likely. And if, if you think back to when Jesus was drugged that early morning before he was so, uh, crucified before the Sanhedrin, their charge was that he claimed to be the son of God, right? And so this idea that you would claim a familial relationship, that you would be a son, a daughter, family of God. Um, and for Jesus, of course, that meant Messiah and a bunch of other things with it. But this idea that any, any person would relate to God in that way was out of bounds. It was unthinkable. And so the Christian confession that God is father is unique to our faith. Uh, The other Abrahamic religion, Islam, if you called God father, that would be blasphemy straight up that you don't, Islam does not relate to God in that way. Um, God is 
Allah, transcendent, all-powerful, um, but not Father. And so this confession that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that God is our Father is fundamentally unique and different, special, uh, and it is, it is in some ways what makes us Christian. If we got out, we're not going to talk about Eastern religions today, but if you know anything about Hinduism or Buddhism or um, any of those uh, sort of Eastern religions, this idea would be just completely foreign to those religions. And so it is a unique Christian confession that God, the all-powerful, the almighty being, is also our father. Let's deal briefly with some of the objections to this. Now, in our day and age, as we sort of come out of a culture and we are becoming more of a uh, egalitarian culture in which men and women are more equal, the question that naturally arises is, is this conception of God too patriarchal? Is it too male? Um, and to that, we could immediately respond, well, no, because it is God's self-revelation, right? And that, that's an important point, that God has chosen through Jesus to reveal himself as father. For whatever reason, that's the way he chose to name himself. That's the way Jesus referred to him and Jesus called us to refer to him that way. All right. So regardless of what social storms are brewing or what's out there, you may want to call God mother, but Jesus calls him father. And so I'm going to stick with that one because that's what Jesus said. And I would recommend that you do the same. Um, but I saw recently, it was a meme. I, I don't remember where it was, but it said something to the effect of, if, if you can't refer to God as mother, then you don't understand the nature of God. How does that make you feel? Angry? I don't think it needs to make us angry, right? Um, there's something a little off-putting about it because of what we said. God is revealed as, as father. But there's something actually very true about it. And, and I'm not, it, again, I'm not encouraging you to go around calling God mother. Um, but God is referred to in mother-like qualities frequently in the Bible. Um, Israel is said to draw near to God's breast and suckle like a newborn babe. Um, God is um, referred to as a, a mother, you know, referred to loving his people as mother loves the child. So there are many ways in which we look at the descriptions of God and the way that he relates to his people and to us, which is mother-like. All right, so while I would not go so far to say that we need to start praying to mother God, I would say that we need to understand that God has both father and mother-like qualities despite being revealed as father. And this raises some interesting questions. Um, but again, the revelation is God as father. So the question then is what is revealed? What, what does Jesus calling him father tell us, right? So what's behind that? And this is not a question that is new to the church, although we may think that we have these modern problems of uh, relating to God as Father. Um, I will say that one of the other objections that is, I think, valid completely is, uh, and Jamie prayed for uh, those of us who have fathers who aren't the best. They're abusive, they're neglectful, they're hurtful. For whatever reason, they are not good fathers. And it can be very difficult for people who come out of relationships like that, who have experience with a father to then look to God and name him father because that relationship has been so tainted and soiled by their earthly fathers. And so we just need to acknowledge that. Um, and I would say that we need to pray over that. 
and ask that that relationship be, one, the earthly relationship be healed, of course, but also let us reflect on what is being revealed here. And I think once we get behind that, some of that issue, not all of it, of course, um, is sort of alleviated. So when we talk about what's being revealed, and again here, we are going to go back to these early centuries of the church because this is not a problem that's unique to the 20th or 21st century, this idea of what, it, what, what is God's gender, right? That's not, that's not a new debate or discussion. Um, so let's go back and take a look for a minute about or at what some of these early church fathers said. This is Athanasius. If you remember, we did talk briefly about the Trinity in, in one way, one Sunday, and I, I, we talked about Athanasius because he was the defender of the Orthodox position of the Trinity. Um, so you've seen his name before, but as he talks about God the Father, he says, God is by nature incorporeal. That is, he doesn't have a body. He's invisible and untouchable. And so when we come to God and we're talking about particularly you know, this idea of fatherhood or God's fatherhood and what, what is God, we, he says, every bodily thought must be shunned in these matters, okay? We're gonna go through these and then come back and reflect on them. Gregory of, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, he is a big name in the early church. Um, if you study church history at all, you're probably familiar with this name, um, but he, he deals with this heavily. He says, father and son are to be used without any bodily idea in our minds. We accept the realities without being put off by the names. So in some ways that's, that's a rebuttal or an answer to someone who has a problem calling God Father, because we're not dealing ultimately, the point they're making is God, God is not, God's not male, right? The way that we are, I'm male, and the men here are male, nor, nor is he female, right? As Athanasius says, he doesn't have a body, right? He doesn't have girl parts, he doesn't have boy parts, right? God is not, not a man, he's not a woman, all right? He's God. Uh, he's, for some reason, chosen to reveal himself as Father, but uh, that has more to do with the relationship than it has to do with gender, Gregory goes on and he says, do you take it that our God is a male because of the masculine nouns God and Father? Many of us would, right? He says, then is the Godhead female because in Greek the word is feminine? Um, and, and he's drawing out the, the, the reality that as we as people talk about God, we naturally are going to use analogies. All theological language is the language of analogy. As we strive to cope with and understand and grasp what and who God is, we use lots of analogies. And Paul does this. Some Sunday we're going to talk about atonement and all the different ways in which God or Paul talks about atonement and the different theories that have developed. And at different periods of the church history, one of those uh, analogies gets elevated above another. And so we end up with different ways in which or ideas about what happened on the cross, like the actual mechanics of salvation. But what Paul ultimately is doing, he's just using a bunch of metaphors to try to explain. He says, it's like being set free. It's like being redeemed. It's like God pays a penalty for us. It's like all of these things, all of them sort of shedding some light on what happened, but none of them explaining purely and exactly what happened. And maybe someday when we get to the hereafter, we can sit down and say, okay, God, what actually happened? Or maybe it will always remain a mystery. I don't have an answer for that. Uh, but what I can say is theological language is analogy and father is analogy. And that's what these early church leaders and Christians were getting at as they wrestled with, is God father masculine? Well, when we refer to the, the Godhead, well, that's a feminine word. Does that mean he's now male? Is he both male and female? It's kind of, he's just kind of showing the absurdity of that thought. And as we go back and we've talked before about the history, the wisdom tradition, which 
in many ways was the precedent to the ideas about the Holy Spirit. Wisdom in the Old Testament is, is related as feminine. Is the Holy Spirit a woman? Just because the, the noun is feminine and we talk about it in a feminine way? Well, of course not. We are men and women created in his image, but we are not God. God is not us. Okay, so father, son, to the extent that Jesus was son, of course, he's, he's enfleshed as male, right? But as the eternal word, he's not gendered, right? He's the eternal word. We, that was our discussion that Trinity Sunday. The difference between Jesus as the enfleshed, embodied word and the eternal word, which exists outside of and beyond the, Jesus as male and enfleshed. The second quote here, it says, Father designates neither the substance nor the activity, right? But the relationship, the manner of being, which holds good between father and son. So right there, he's saying, what we're talking about when we say God is father, we're, we're describing the relationship. We're not saying anything about God's gender, okay? We're talking about the way he chooses to relate to us and that we ought to come into relationship with him. And so when we think of the one who has trouble with their earthly father, right? Why do you have trouble? Because the relationship is bad, right? In some ways that proves the point. A father ought to be not that. A father ought to be loving and caring. And it is that picture of fatherhood that describes this relationship that we have between God. And to that extent, we could say a relationship that a mother has with a child also in many ways describes the relationship that God has with us. And I feel confident saying that because the text says that, right? Our scriptures say that, right? So God is, incorporates both masculine and feminine traits, both father and mother traits, but has revealed himself and says for us to call him father. But again, it's not because he's a dude. He's not male, right? It's because he is God and he loves us and he wants to be in a relationship with us. All right. The second part of this uh, phrase that we're looking at today is almighty. So I believe in God, the Father almighty. If I asked you to define almighty, what, what would you say? Above all other? In, in, we're not, I'm not even going to touch in control today. <laughs> That's a debate for another day. Any other ideas? Above all other actually does pretty well. It gets at it without equal, right? To be almighty is to possess all might, right? All power is his, right? So this confession of the early church right out of the gate, and this is a confession that certainly carries forward from Judaism, is that there is one God. This is a monotheistic claim. That is, there's one God who has all the power above all others. And that stands in opposition to pagan religion in which there are many gods, all who possess varying forms of power. And so there was a lead God, Zeus, in the Roman tradition, right? Who is kind of the leader of gods, but he had power and Apollo had power and Diana had power. And like, I'm now mixing Greek and Roman gods but, and goddesses, but they, they all had different powers. And so any particular God was just one power among many others. But the confession that I believe in God, the Father Almighty makes is, I believe in the monotheistic God of the Jewish tradition, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who possesses all power. So it's not that he competes, is that he is the all-powerful one and any power that exists stems from him. And Paul makes this uh, clear. Jesus himself says this in as much to Pilate when he's being questioned by Pilate, right? When he, Jesus looks at 
But Pilate says, I have the authority to crucify you or set you free. And Jesus says, you have no authority aside from what my father has given to you, right? And so all authority comes necessarily from, Jesus, from God. God is the almighty. All power resides in him. So the question is, what is that power? What does that look like, right? Um, it's real easy to talk about the almighty God and, and get a picture of like the, the magic genie, right? This God sort of floating up in the ether who has the power. Maybe he's got a lightning bolt like Zeus and he throws it every once in a while, or he just makes dictates with his word um, and controls everything, right? Um, that is not the picture of God that we are given, particularly by Jesus. Um, God certainly could do whatever he wanted to, but the question is, what does it mean for God to be powerful, Right? There's a, um, a church out in California. I'm not going to out them today, but one of their worship leaders was talking one day, and this is, this is out on YouTube. And she actually, she said, she was talking about God and the relationship she has with God. And she said, I like to think God as, as my genie in the sky. And she said that. And, and you can imagine that it's gotten quite a response from the Christian community. Um, but th- this idea, this is an idea that's out there. She actually gave it voice that God is just the genie who we make wishes to, that when we come and we pray to God, we're just making a request of the all-powerful genie in the sky, and we hope that he uh, fulfills our wish, right? Um, this is not God. This is not what it means to be father. This is not what it means to be almighty, Okay. God's power, and this is going to sound a little uh, 60s, 70s hippie-ish, and I, I recognize that. We don't want to go there, but God's power is in his love, right? And so we're not going to sit up here and sing, all we need is love today, but what we need to understand is it is God's nature as love that gives, gives the compulsion that is the stem or the root for his power, okay? And so as we get into, and we sort of, I'm getting ahead a little bit, as we talk about Trinity and we talk about that relationship, one of the reasons it's father-son and that language is used is because that's a loving relationship. And what the Trinity is, is one being in three persons, just go with me for now, right? One being three persons who are in mutual relationship and mutual love, pouring, love pouring into one another, right? Is this symbiotic, coexistive, loving relationship. And it's out of that loving relationship that creation comes forth, right? So creation springs forth out of love, right? God creates the world to love something, right? And to have something to love, to create relationship, right? It is actually his love that gives the impetus and the power to create. And then what's the story? We break it, but God still loves us. And so he calls Abraham, he establishes a nation, Things go a little funky. They end up enslaved. They're enslaved for hundreds of years. And then what happens? They cry out to him. And we're told that God hears the cries of his people. And because he loves, he responds. And I said this in the first service. And when it came out of my lips, I thought that doesn't sound right, but it's true. Because he loves, he sends plagues, <laughs> right? right? He, he takes action in the world in order to bring his people out of captivity to establish them as a nation, and remember that the whole purpose of Israel is not for Israel's sake, but for the world's sake. That is through Israel, God will redeem the entire world. It is out of love for the entire world that Israel is founded, brought out of captivity, established as a nation. And then they continue to mess it up, right? 
And then ultimately, Jesus comes. And why does Jesus come? Yeah, John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? Jesus comes, God sends Jesus. Why? Because God loves us. Because God loves the world, right? God's essence is love, right? Theologically, we talk about God and we give him many attributes. And within the history and the Orthodox faith, there are many omnis, right? He's omnipresent, Omni, uh, omniscient, so he's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's present everywhere, he's all-powerful, omnipotent, right? We have all these omnis, which if you went through catechism or you've been in the church a long time, you probably have learned about. These are all descriptions of his nature. But when the scripture wants to tell you what God is, what is God? John tells us this, God is love, right? His essence, his being, his identity, right? His core is love. And all these other things come about in response and out of that existence and that essence, right? His power, his omnipotence, his powerfulness stems from his love, is given voice, is given structure, is given power by and through love. If I had to tell you that, or I asked you what is like the, the act that, God, that shows God's power, what is the most powerful act that we as Christians hold to, what is it? The resurrection, the crucifixion. Let's put those together, right? This is the Jesus event, right? So what we are claiming as Christians is the, the most power, the, the moment in which God exerts his power in the world is the cross and the subsequent empty tomb, right? This is the example and the exercise of God's power, which is what? Love, right? So when God wants to exert his power and his might, his almightiness, he doesn't throw a thunderbolt or make a divine fiat. He doesn't send an army. He comes meekly as a servant in love. And it is loving action that appears to be defeat, which turns out to be the most powerful action. God's power is his love. God's love is his power. And so when we say God, the Father Almighty, what we're saying is God, the Father who relates to us, who loves us, who has all the power in the world, and that power is love. And so now we can hold hands and sing Kumbaya, right? right? But it's, it's in no way a weak, hippie love. I wasn't a hippie. I don't know. Maybe the hippies didn't think that about love, right? I don't think they did, right? I think in some ways they, they understood that and perhaps without knowing God well, but they understood that there is great power in love. I came across this uh, quote. It was talking about the cross and the way in which it, it is not coercive. It is not violent. It is the opposite of all of that. It is the thing that says, I'm going to do this because I love you and my love will then compel you, hopefully will draw you to me. It says, true power is not the ability to control. Controlling behavior is a sign of weakness and insecurity. True power is the ability to love and enable without reserve. God's power, like the power of a good parent or teacher, is the capacity to nourish other agents and to help their freedom grow. This is the power of God, that he draws near to us. He indwells us with his, with his spirit, right? The power of the spirit lives within us. 
That spirit, that love, that power is love. He loves us. He loves us into the people that we ought to be, that we were created to be, right? And he calls us to be agents of that love. At this point, I'm a broken record, right? We talk about this every week. We are called to be the conduits for God's love in the world. That is just another way of saying we are to receive the power of God and then go into the world in that power and extend that power to the world. And that power is love. It is in loving the world well, is it receiving first God's love for us, understanding this fatherly relationship that he has with us, this close, intimate relationship, receiving that grace, receiving that love, receiving that mercy, drawing near to him, being filled with it, and then going into the world and spilling it everywhere, right? Not in a coercive way, not in a, you gotta be a Christian, you're going to hell way, but God loves you and I love you. And we're going to continue to love you, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, because that's what God tells us to do. And when we do that, we find that people are transformed. People repent, which means they think again. All of a sudden, they find themselves drawn to this people who claim to follow a Jesus, who they claim loves me. And what I can see is they do. And so maybe I need to think about this God thing again right? Repentance in Greek is metanoia. It literally means to rethink. Do a 180 with your brain, right? Reconsider what you think, the way you live. And it is the power of God's love, the love of God's power that makes that happen for us and for everyone else. So God's power comes to us most tangibly and most powerfully in the cross. And the God's power is love. God's power is his exerting his power happens in loving sacrifice. So we say we believe in God, the father almighty. This is not and stands in opposition to that pagan belief in which God would be just one among many other gods. We believe in a God who relates to us as a father intimately, not only a transcendent, powerful God of the sky, but one who is intimately near us, who loves us, who draws us into relationship with him, whose love ultimately is his power. Augustine, going back to the idea of gender, actually when describing, um, Augustine was uh, what we would consider now Catholic, but the early church uh, scholar who left quite a mark on the way we think about God and, and we do theology and, and uh, think about sin and redemption and those sorts of things. But in, in describing the divine power, he actually says that divine power is maternal love expressing itself as weakness. So there again, we get this picture and a description, a biblical one, in fact, that God's love is maternal. While at the same time, we call him father, right? And we are reminded that what we're describing is not a gendered super being in the sky. We're describing a relationship that the supreme being, the almighty God desires to have with us. And if we think back about all we've said through the last year, as we've looked through these New Testament books, what's, what's like the theme that runs through all of them? Love each other, right? James says it, John says it, Paul says it, the writer of Hebrews says it, every single one of them harps on it over and over. Set aside your selfish inclinations, set yourself aside, put the good of others ahead of yours, love each other love. Why? 
Not because it's just a good example. Not because it's true. God, people on the outside, and this was true, it happened. People on the outside looked at the church and said, wow, they love each other. They actually love, they love everybody. They're picking up the kid that I didn't want that I put in the street and loving them and adopting them and raising them. They're picking up the sick people in the streets as the plagues come through and taking them in and loving. Like they are actually loving. That's, that's amazing, right? But the reason that the, the New Testament would harp on love so much is it is the powerful act. It is the power by which the church is made and grows, right? Love is the power. It is what we tap into, right? When we draw near to our Father, when we are indwelled by the Spirit, when we are filled by the Spirit and speak the prophecy, speak the gospel, it is all motivated from a place of love. And if it's not, there's something wrong with us. We've got it twisted, right? But time and time again, New Testament writers encourage us, tell us, to love one another because love is the expression of God's power in this world. It's the way in which he exerts power. It's the way he chooses to do it. Can he do otherwise? Probably so. But it is his nature to exert his power in loving ways in the world. And it is becoming a conduit for that power that we partner with him in the restoration. And so we believe, last week we talked about the fact that the opening statement of this creed is, I believe, or we believe, if we say it together, right? I believe it's a faith statement. We talked about the fact that it is not empirically provable. It's not rationally or philosophically provable, although we can give good reasons and point to good empirical reasons why we would believe that gives it validity. It is not hard and fast proof. And so what, we, what are we talking about here when we say we're Christians is we believe we are making the choice to put our trust in a God. But what we said is that when we do that, when we take that leap and we described it, not as a leap in the dark that an atheist would say it is, but rather a leap into the light. When we do that, when we make that movement towards God, we experience that power. We experience that love. And it is that experience of God's powerful love, drawing us, filling us, transforming us, that proves it to us. As Christians, we have proof for ourselves. We have experienced this, right? We know this, right? Can, can I prove that to the other person? Well, I can't prove my experience to someone else. All I can do is invite them into the family to have the experience themselves, right? But this is what we believe. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. We believe in the transcendent, all-powerful God who is loving and good enough to send his son to redeem us and to bring us into a relationship that is close, that is intimate, that we can turn to him and say, Abba, and understand not that he's a dude, but that he is a God who's right here, who will walk with us, who will comfort us, who will lead us, who will transform us, who will challenge us, who will compel us into this world to do his work, but will be there beside us the whole way. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Today, we thank you that 
You have granted us a taste of your love and experience of being close to you, walking with you, being filled with you, with your spirit, being indwelled, being transformed, and so that we can say we believe. And this morning, as it's Father's Day, we reflect on the way in which you are Father, as not male, but as a transcendent, all-powerful being who is so far beyond our comprehension and our ability to even approach that we ought not even consider calling you Father. Yet that is how you choose to be known. That is how your Son has invited us into the, into the family so that we may call out and call you Abba, call you Daddy, call you Father. And that is an unspeakable privilege, an unspeakable truth, and one which we can only begin to grasp and comprehend. And so this morning, God, as we celebrate our earthly fathers, we also celebrate uh, the way in which you relate to us. And we thank you for that. We ask in the next few moments as we come to you to worship, to praise, to sing to you, that you, you receive our offering of praise, that you hear our words, and that you know that we love you too that we are thankful for all that you have done. We are thankful that you are a father. We are thankful that you are near, you are close, that you are who you are, and we recognize that. And so, Lord, as we, as we sing these songs, we ask that you would make us worthy, that you would make it a sweet sound in your ears. We love you. We ask all this and pray all this in your son's name and the power of your spirit. Amen.